This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 231st episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a new Mongolian hadrosaur description. We also have some other new dinosaur finds, which haven't been officially described yet, and a controversial T-Rex sale going on on eBay. We also have an interview with Steve Brusati where we talk about his new book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, as well as a lot of other things, as usual. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Hastasaurus. But before we get into all of that, we would like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Cody, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, Albertosaurus, and Alan. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate everybody's support. You might be able to tell I'm a little bit sick, so don't mind me. <laughs> Garrett will be editing out all my coughs. Hopefully I don't miss any <laughs> apologies if some of them slip in the background a little bit. But yeah, thank you. We really appreciate all your support and it helps us to keep this podcast going and as Garrett mentioned, we offer a bunch of rewards. So if you're interested in joining, then go to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, first we're going to talk about the new hadrosauroid, which was discovered in Mongolia, and it was published in PLOS One, written by, I'm going to butcher this name, but something like Kishigav Sogbatar. And thank you to James for recommending it to us via Patreon. So this is, as you probably guessed, based on me calling it a hadrosauroid. It's a non-hadrosaurid hadrosauroid. <laughs> In other words, it's like a more basal hadrosaur. It's not something like an Edmontosaurus where, you know, they have more derived characteristics and like thousands of teeth and a lot of things like that. It's a little bit more early evolution of hadrosaurs. And very roughly, it's in the ballpark of about 90 million years ago. Really, it's like 90 million plus or minus 10 million years because we don't have really great dating on the area it's from. And it's named Gobihadros mongoliensis. And Gobihadros is from Gobi because it was found in the Gobi Desert, specifically the central and eastern Gobi. And then mongoliensis is because the Gobi Desert is in Mongolia, and that's where it was found. <laughs> so there you go. 
The description includes a, quote, virtually complete and undeformed skull and postcranial skeleton, as well as extensive referred material, end quote. So it's quite a good find. According to the authors, that makes it, quote, the first non-hadrosaurid hadrosauroid from the late Cretaceous of Central Asia known from a complete articulated skull and skeleton, end quote. So it's, I'm thinking of it kind of like the Edmontosaurus of Asia, where, you know, it's like a very complete hadrosaur that we have a pretty good idea about now, just like with Edmontosaurus, although obviously this is an earlier dinosaur. Since you have to pick a holotype when you have a bunch of dinosaur bones to choose from, they picked the postcranial skeleton as the holotype for Gobihadros, which means the skull is technically just referred to it. So if later on they figure out, oops, that skull belongs to a different hadrosauroid, then the skull could be renamed, whereas the body will always be Gobihadros, as long as it doesn't get synonymized with some other hadrosauroid. It was pretty small for a hadrosauroid. It's only about 2.9 meters or nine and a half feet long. And they didn't do histology, but they did say, quote, the available specimens represent a range of sizes and presumed ontogenetic stages from subadult to adult. The osteology described here is consistent across the known size variation and is hypothesized to characterize the adult morphology, end quote. And the reason I wanted to read that whole thing is because I couldn't find where they specifically said that like the skull appears to be from an adult and the body appears to be from a subadult or vice versa. Like that's one of the only places they use the word adult anywhere in the paper. So I'm guessing that the body that they have is from a subadult because of the size and other people have talked about how it was likely still growing, but I'm not really certain about that. In any event, though, it is still pretty small because if it's nearly an adult and it's less than 10 feet long, that's pretty small because Edmontosaurus is, you know, 30 to 40 feet long. So this guy's pretty small by comparison. Yep. It looks kind of similar to Bactrosaurus and Gilmorosaurus, but it has some key differences. One of them is that it has up to three functional teeth in a single quote unquote tooth position. That's a lot of teeth crammed into one spot. <laughs> it is. So, I, you know, it's kind of typical for a crazy dental battery that you see in the later true hadrosaurids, you could call them. So like the more derived hadrosaurs. But I think with the earlier hadrosaurs, it's more like one or two teeth per tooth socket. I think tooth socket is a synonym for tooth position, if I'm not mistaken. And they mentioned that they think this is convergent evolution. So even though the later ones also had all these teeth jammed into one tooth position, they think that Gobihadros evolved it separately. So it's like always, you know, you get these weird, messy evolutionary trees and you have to kind of piece together what actually it has in common with other dinosaurs because they evolved once and it's sort of a shared trait and which things actually evolved separately and just happen to be shared amongst the dinosaurs. So the tooth positions is one of those. But it helps the paleontologists tell the difference between Gobihadros and Bactrosaurus and Gilmorosaurus. The lead author also told Sci News that Asian hadrosaurids like Gobihadros appear to have gone extinct when North American hadrosaurs showed up. And that probably indicates that North American hadrosaurs outcompeted their Asian cousins once sort of they migrated their way over. Similar to what we've talked about a really long time ago <laughs> with South America and North America with the great American faunal interchange where like we used to have all these huge ground sloths and there were terror birds and all sorts of really cool 
South American animals. You know, now we just have like the small sloths left. But back when those two continents originally combined, you had all these like saber-toothed cats in air quotes, <laughs> smilodons going down into South America and a lot of the South American animals going up into North America and North America won out on most of those battles. So a lot of those South American taxa went extinct. So we think the same kind of thing happened here where a lot of the hadrosauroids that were originally in Asia and evolved on their own there got outcompeted once the North American ones showed up. So kind of sad. But in this case, it's a good example that it's not just as simple as them getting eaten by the other animals because these things all eat plants. It would just mean that the North American ones were better at eating, basically, so they could gobble up all the food and then there wasn't anything left for the Asian hadrosaurs, for example. Yeah, that happened a lot. It does, yeah. It's the more common way for things to go extinct, really, than just being eaten out of <laughs> existence. I believe that Gobi Hadros is housed at the Mongolian Paleontological Center in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia, but the history of it is a little bit complicated. So it was collected in a joint expedition with the Haya Shibara Museum of Natural Sciences in Japan back in a 1993 to 2003 collaboration, you know, joint Japan-Mongolia expedition. But unfortunately, the Haya Shibara Museum of Natural Sciences closed in 2015, which might be why this publication was delayed for so long. So it turns out that the Haya Shibara company funded the digs as well as the Haya Shibara Museum, but it went through bankruptcy back in 2011. And there was a lot of posts that I found when I was searching about this, about people being concerned about what was going to happen to all these fossils, because they also had a ton of fossils from North America. Fortunately, it looks like much of the collection was moved to the Fukui Dinosaur Museum. I think there were like 30 to 40 pretty significant fossils that ended up there. And I'm guessing at that time, Gobi Hadros went back to Mongolia. Although I'm not really sure because it wasn't mentioned, none of this was mentioned anywhere in the article. I had to dig it from multiple sources. So it could have just been in Mongolia the whole time, or maybe it wasn't because Haya Shibara was apparently funding the actual lab work on the fossil too, which would make me think that they were doing that in their own museum in Japan. But in any event, it's in Mongolia now, and maybe someday it'll be on display. There isn't a ton of exhibition space in the Mongolian Paleontological Center, so it's hard to say if it'll go on display in any major way. But hopefully, because it's a pretty cool dinosaur, it's interesting to see like a relatively full-grown hadrosauroid, which is so small. In other news... There's some big controversy over the sale of a baby T-Rex that it's on sale on eBay, and it's been priced at $2.95 million. The listing description reads, quote, most likely the only baby T-Rex in the world. It has a 15-foot-long body and a 21-inch skull with serrated teeth. This Rex was a very dangerous meat eater. It's a rare opportunity indeed to ever see a baby Rex. If they did not grow quickly, they could not catch prey and would die. Histology shows the specimen to be approximately four years old upon death. Reconstruction of the skull has been done by curator of vertebrate paleontology from Natural History Museum in Florida, end quote. And there's a little bit more to it, but that was the main part of the description. This listing has been up since sometime in February, maybe mid-February. So what happened was... It's this baby T-Rex skeleton. It was found in 2013 on private land in Montana. 
and a man named Alan Dietrich found it. And then he lent it to the University of Kansas Natural History Museum to honor his late mentor, Larry Martin, who was a curator at the museum. And it was still on display. And then Dietrich decided to put it up for auction and he didn't tell anybody at the Kansas Museum. So we've talked a lot about this. Uh, SVP, not surprisingly, is against the auction. The skeleton is probably going to end up in a private collection, which then means it can't be studied and it can't help end the debate about Nanotyrannus, which is why this is controversial. And as we know, there's the debate where was Nanotyrannus its own genus or was it actually a baby T-Rex? Yeah. And if you think that Nanotyrannus is a baby T-Rex, then this certainly isn't the only baby T-Rex in the world. Yes. So like I said, the University of Kansas They said that they didn't know about the plan to auction off the skeleton on eBay. And museum director Leonard Kushtaka said that they've taken down the exhibit because it was still on display when it was put up for sale. Oh, geez. They asked to remove from the listing any reference to the museum as well. Alan Dietrich said that the skeleton will eventually end up in a museum. He thinks if a billionaire buys it, they'll probably gift it to a museum someday for tax purposes. So it doesn't look like anyone has offered to pay the asking price yet. Though there's a lot of watchers. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. We should watch that if we haven't yet so that we get alerted when it sells. Yeah, but it's been up for a couple months now. Yeah. I mean, if they have it listed as the minimum price of almost $3 million, Mm -hmm. most people want like a huge T-Rex if they can. You'd probably rather get like a big adult T-Rex skull than a baby T-Rex complete skeleton, I would guess. Right. So that might be a little bit too high for what it is. It's really interesting. I didn't realize that it had been put on display at a museum. We've talked about that one on display. Actually, that came up when we had a video about the Nanotyrannosaurus debate. Mm. And some people in the comments pointed out that there's this one the University of Kansas Natural History Museum has. And if we studied that, that could help end it. So, Yep, but we can't study it. And even if it does get sold to someone who wants to study it, most places won't publish on it unless it's held at a museum. Mm. Right. In another part of the country, in Hillsboro, Texas, there's been a new dinosaur discovery. So Andre Lujan found a new type of ankylosaur back in 2017 while on a dig in West Texas. And he described it as, I quote, because it's a great description, a quote, cross between a horny toad and an armadillo with a giant bony club on the end of its tail. Hmm. So this dinosaur might be up to 18 feet long and... Luhan said that it's the, quote, most complete southernmost ankylosaur ever discovered in the United States, end quote. So another ankylosaur for you, Garrett. But they need funding to keep excavating, and they also want to create a replica of the dinosaur. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, in the video that goes with it, they show a picture of the echinocephalus that was discovered recently, but that was from Utah. So I'm not sure if they think it was related or what's going on with that. Sounds like the most they know is and Kylosaur. Yeah, could be. At least the most they're willing to share. <laughs> In Japan, the largest dinosaur skeleton that's been found so far has been restored as a life-size replica, and it's going to be on display at the National Museum of Nature and Science in Tokyo for three months, starting July 13th. That one is a hadrosauroid. It's about eight meters long, four meters tall, 26 feet long, or 13 feet tall. And the skeleton is nicknamed Mukawiriyu. It was found in Mukoa in Hokkaido. And a local fossil collector, Yoshiyuki Harita, found the tailbone in 2003. The dinosaur was excavated in 2013. Scientists have found over a thousand bones, about 80% of this dinosaur. Wow. 
So that's either from lots of individuals, because <laughs> I don't think dinosaurs usually have over a thousand bones, or it's different pieces of bones. It was unclear in the article, and I think the article I found was a translated version, so hard to say. Yeah. Also in Japan, an 18-year-old high school student, Yuki Kataguchi, found a 90-million-year-old tyrannosaur tooth that's now on display at the Kuji Amber Museum until August 19th. That's in northern Japan. It's north of Tokyo, but also to the east. There's so many cool museums in Japan. Yeah. So this fossil is 9 millimeters long. It's possibly from a new tyrannosaur species. This is according to Waseda University professor Ren Hirayama. Interesting. A tyrannosaur tooth that's only nine millimeters long. I don't think it's the full tooth. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's probably based on the shape of it since yeah. they tend to be so much thicker. Although if it's 90 million years old, tyrannosaurs were still pretty small. So I guess that's reasonable. In St. George, Utah, high school senior Connor Bennett recently presented findings on the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site about dinosaur tracks at the SDU Regional Research Symposium. So Bennett has volunteered and interned for the past five years at the site under Andrew Milner, the paleontologist and curator, and they've mapped the Andres Alcove track site and collected data for peer review. They've found fossils and footprints in what used to be small pools of water, and the tracks include Eubrontes, Grawiter, Batrachopus and Anomopus, as well as probably some sort of sauropodomorph track. Yeah, so it sounds like a really good track site, and they've done a lot of work, and it's also impressive that it's a high school senior who, and he's been working on this for five years already, who was presenting the information. Yeah, that means he probably started when he was in middle school. Yeah, he did. We've got one more news item. It's an update on the fossil bill in Montana. So Montana Governor Steve Bullock signed the bill that says the fossils are part of a property surface rights, not mineral rights, unless there's a contract that says otherwise. And we kind of expected that. So it's a quick update since the bill passed unanimously in both the House and the Senate. Yeah. Seems like people are pretty happy about this because it tends to be easier to get fossils from people that own the surface rights than people that own the mineral rights because it's usually like bigger companies that own mineral rights versus surface rights are often like ranchers or somebody that are a little more willing to give it away to a museum potentially. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. 
You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Steve. So we're joined this week by Steve Brusati, and he's a paleontologist at the University of Edinburgh. Before moving to the UK, he spent several years at the American Museum of Natural History, and he is also the resident paleontologist for BBC's Walking with Dinosaurs. But maybe more exciting, he's also found a lot of dinosaurs all over the place, including a couple big theropods that you might have heard of. So what does being a resident paleontologist for the Walking with Dinosaurs mean? All right. Well, first things, Gareth, Sabrina, thanks for having me. Uh, it's really fun to do this. I know you guys are so popular. And um, I know, you know, so many uh, of us in the field, you know, listen in. And also, I just know a lot of people uh, all over the place listen to the podcast. So this is great. And thanks for giving me the chance to talk about some of this stuff and do what I like to do best, which is just blab around about dinosaurs. <laughs> so, um, to answer your question about the Walking with Dinosaurs stuff. So, you know, when, when I was uh, in high school, uh, growing up in the, the middle part of the U.S., not too far from Chicago, uh, I remember watching Walking with Dinosaurs on television, the original series, the BBC series. This was something that just blew my mind. This was right around the time I was becoming interested in dinosaurs. I was not obsessed with dinosaurs as a young kid. It was something that came to me as a, a teenager, and that show was on right around that time. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. You know, these dinosaurs that were basically presented just going about their everyday business, walking around, hunting, eating, uh, sleeping, reproducing, swimming, all of these things, just like you were watching a nature documentary. And and that was just a really special show. So it's been a lot of fun to, to work with a lot of the folks in that world. And now walking with dinosaurs nowadays, it's still a, a, a program that's uh, run by the BBC here in the UK. And, you know, things have evolved. And the biggest thing is that a, a few years back, there was a movie, a blockbuster movie that was released in cinemas at Christmas time. Mm. And that was this, you know, 3D movie with the talking dinosaurs. I know they were talking <laughs> dinosaurs. And that's, uh, you know, something that uh, that just happened because, hey, this was a movie with an enormous budget and lots of big players were involved with it. 20th Century Fox partnered with the BBC for it. But uh, my, my main role on that was as a consultant on the film. There were a series of people that consulted, people that were experts on a lot of the different dinosaurs that were shown in the film. And I was on board as something of a general consultant. So I just uh, was there to work with the filmmakers to make sure best I could that the dinosaurs they were showing were, um, were, were correct. They were accurate, at least accurate based on what we know as fossils. So they were the right size and shape and their postures were right and they were in the right kind of environments and they were interacting in a 
reasonable way. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've done other little roles with Walking with Dinosaurs and have worked on consulting on some of the toys and some of the video games. And I wrote uh, a little book for kids that accompanied the film. But I've enjoyed all of it because I think this is the way that most people get to learn about, know about, appreciate dinosaurs. You know, most people are not people like us that are so into dinosaurs that we live and breathe it. But most people <laughs> are probably fascinated by dinosaurs, but it's these sort of films, um, these big blockbusters and these television series that that uh, reach so many people all over the world. So I think it's a, a real privilege just to be able to use some of that expertise that I've developed in all these years of being a, a researcher and doing all these degrees and then learning this very nuanced, very technical science, just to be able to um, have platforms like this to communicate it. And so, so, so I love that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we all know that pretty much every person gets their depiction of dinosaurs from one movie in particular so <laughs> the only way to kind of update people's view on dinosaurs because clearly jurassic park franchise isn't interested in updating anything is to <laughs> have new movies and new media that is kind of widely accessible yep and i would say though keep an eye out for the next uh, jurassic world it'll be oh, coming yeah. out in 2021 um and uh you know i've been talking a little bit let's say with uh with the folks behind it, uh, Colin Trevorrow, who's the the wonderful um, producer director, who's you know the brains behind the franchise now, and mm -hmm. uh, I think there's going to be a great film. I think this one is is going to be the best of the Jurassic Worlds, and everything I've seen so far, I think uh, this one's going to be the best one since the original. So oh, mark it nice. down that I say this in <laughs> you know, 2019. That uh, wait a few years, I think I think you are going to see some some really neat and some new stuff from the franchise. You know, that franchise, yeah, sometimes, you know, those of us in the know, those those dino geeks amongst us that, you know, that know the size and the shape and the age and the, all the vital stats of all the dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can we can, you know, pick fun at Jurassic Park a little bit, of course. But I think by and large, it's just such a wonderful franchise. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world have seen those films. So many paleontologists of my generation were kids when the first one came out in 1993. Mm -hmm. I would imagine the two of you probably remember seeing it in the cinema in a similar yeah. way to I do. I mean, I, I still, even though I wasn't that into dinosaurs then, you know, I was nine years old, but it was such a powerful experience. And there is no coincidence that right now, the research side of, of dinosaur paleontology is buzzing mm -hmm. 25 years after Jurassic Park. You know, that film did so much to introduce dinosaurs to a new generation, but not just a new generation of little boys in the U.S. and Canada and Britain, you know, like it kind of used to be. A, a new generation of everybody around the world. And there are so many people, I have so many colleagues from all over the place, from across Europe, from South America, from China, who saw that film when they were young and they've gone on to study dinosaurs. And, you know, people are finding more dinosaurs than ever before right now. A new species a week is being discovered somewhere around the world. And that is because it's this young generation, a global generation, a diverse generation. It's women, it's men, it's people of lots of different backgrounds and it's people everywhere on all continents. And I really think one of the great triggers of that, one of the great um, sparks of that was that film that hit the cinema back in 1993. Oh, for sure. Definitely. 
Yeah, it was great, especially, and for its time, it was very scientifically accurate. Like some of the depictions, like T-Rex, the way that they showed it was pretty groundbreaking. And even for a couple of years after that, there were still movies coming out that had T-Rex in sort of the upright posture. And when you go back and you look at it, you're like, wait, this came out after Jurassic Park? How are they still doing this sort of (laughs) (laughs) depiction? Totally agree. And I, I think there are two great franchises and Jurassic Park is one and Walking with Dinosaurs is the other and yeah. i think that they, they they're they, they're both slightly different and they have slightly different audiences uh but they've both just done a huge service in getting out enthusiasm about dinosaurs but also producing just you know some really fun movies and and, and programs yeah for sure mm-hmm. you mentioned actually a, a bit about jurassic park and the influence it had on you and this generation of paleontologists in your book the rise and fall of the dinosaurs which came out very recently. And what I really liked about the book was you've got, in addition to all this information about dinosaurs and the research that you've done, there's a bunch of research that other people have done, and also just a lot of history about the field of paleontology in terms of like the people who are in it and, and all that sort of thing. I guess, could you talk a little bit about like the process of putting something like this together? Absolutely. I'd love to because I know part of uh, what I need to do here is hawk books. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, those of you that uh, follow me on, on Twitter, maybe know me, you know, you probably heard enough about the book. You're probably tired of me talking about it. It's is, is a little <laughs> bit to publicize this thing all the time. But, you know, the book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, it came out last year. It came out in um, April of 2018 in hardcover. And now it's just coming out in paperback now. There's usually about a year delay. So it's just coming out now. April 2019 in paperback. And so for those of you that maybe haven't seen it yet, now there's going to be a lighter weight, cheaper version of it out there. So maybe <laughs> give, it a, give it a go. But what I wanted to do with the book was to try to write something that tells the story of dinosaurs, their story, the history of dinosaurs, the evolution of dinosaurs, where they came from, how they started small and started humble, living on this supercontinent of Pangaea way back in the Triassic period, and then how they evolved and how they bested their rivals and how they gradually became these enormous dominant animals that spread all around the world, some of which were bigger than jet airplanes, others of which were predators like T-Rex, the size of buses. And then, of course, some of them became smaller and grew feathers and grew wings and became birds. And they just so utterly dominated the planet for over 150 million years until that one terrible day when that asteroid came down and wiped all of them out except for a few birds. (laughs) And that dynasty ended, paving the way for us, for the mammal empire. And so I wanted to try to tell that story because I think it's a great story. And there's so much new that we've learned about it because of this new generation of paleontologists, because of this diverse group of people all over the world going out, digging up a lot of new dinosaurs, and also using a lot of new technologies to study dinosaurs, cat scans to see inside of the brains, computer animations to study how they walked, how they moved, how they fed, bone histology studies using high-powered microscopes to see the look at the bone texture, see how they grew, and <laughs> so on and so forth. So I wanted to try to tell that story, and I wanted to try to tell it not just to the normal audience, again, of you know people like us, people that really know dinosaurs down to our souls, but more to a broad audience, to people who maybe haven't really thought about dinosaurs much since they were 
seven years old, people that maybe haven't thought much about biology or evolution since they took a class on biology in high school. So I wanted to try to tell that story in, in a very general kind of pop science-y way. Um, I've written textbooks or a textbook before, and I've written books for kids before, and I've always had a lot of fun writing different kinds of things for different audiences. But I wanted to go for something here that wasn't just another kid's book and wasn't just another technical book for scientists. And so that, that was my goal with it. What I also wanted to weave into that story was the story of how humans study dinosaurs. You know, what do we actually know? How do we know that T-Rex was the size of a bus and could bite so hard that it crushed through the bones of its prey, but it was so bulky that it couldn't really run, but it grew so fast that it went through this growth spurt that it put on you know, five pounds away a day during its teenage years and that it had feathers. You know, how do we know that? And what has been the process of discovery over time, going back to some of the very first discoveries back when it really was a cowboy man's game of going out to the Badlands and you know, fighting each other for the latest <laughs> Now to today, where it's this global diverse enterprise, very interdisciplinary, very high tech, all kinds of people going out and finding fossils that wouldn't have done so before. And what I wanted to try to do there was highlight the work of a lot of the people who I work with, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends in the field, and a lot of the people who inspire me, the people whose work has helped us understand so much about what dinosaurs were like. And that was really the most fun for me, was trying to find ways to bring in stories of, of the, the people that I just know and love and respect so much in the field. And I hope that gives a little bit of a, the human side of it. Uh, yeah. you know, we're, we're all humans. We're, we're scientists. But, you know, we're not the sort of scientists you see on television, the stereotypes of scientists. We're not all, you know, old guys in the white lab coats. <laughs> you know, that's not the way science is anymore. So I, I and and so so that was my thought process going into it. And that's the story I tried to tell. You know, I, I whether or not that uh, that all came across, I don't know. But it's been a whole lot of fun writing the book. It, it opened up just a whole new world about how publishing works and uh, you know how the press <laughs> works. And my goodness, the importance of getting good reviews. Oh my God, uh, the the soul crushing nature of one-star reviews on Amazon, let me tell you. I mean, probably any author would say the same. I never really knew what that felt like till I saw some of them. Thankfully, the, the small minority are one-star reviews. Yeah, <laughs> but, those are know, always the ones that stick with you, though. <laughs> I absolutely do, you know. And somebody told me this, um, and I was writing, writing the book, that, you know, you can write a great book and, you know, a lot of people can like it, but you'll remember those few things were that people don't like. Those are the things that will stick in your mind. And that's absolutely true. Um, but the, it's it's really been a blast. And I, I just, again, it's, it's been a privilege. I know not everybody has the chance to do these kind of things. I, I got connected with an excellent agent, an excellent editor, an excellent uh, team of publicity and marketing and sales folks. And, you know, that book is my name on the cover, of course, but I think until you go through the process, you just don't realize how many people, good people, people rowing all in the same direction with passion make a project like that. And it's the same in television or film. You know, we're talking about walking yeah. dinosaurs, for instance. Uh, and, and, you know, and for those of us that um, that really are so enthusiastic about dinosaurs and those of us that really like to collaborate and work with others, it's, it's, it's just really, really cool. So, 
you know, the, it's out in paperback now, the book. You know, I love hearing from people that uh, that want to give me feedback on it, even even if you're not such a huge fan of it. <laughs> let me know what you think. I, you know, and, and one of the other fun things has just been getting emails and DMs and tweets and stuff of just people saying, hey, I picked up your book and, and you know, I like this part or could you expand on this part or, oh, my goodness, you know, I, I had no idea about this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What I also really liked was you talked a lot about the process of you becoming a paleontologist, because I know there's a lot of people out there, they might be interested in dinosaurs, but maybe they don't know how they can get involved. Yeah, we get questions all the time, like, what should I study? How do I become a paleontologist? Yeah, two of you must get these questions a lot. (laughs) You know, I get those questions a decent amount as well, probably a lot of academic paleontologists do, but yeah, I mean, you guys guys need (laughs) some sort of clerical staff probably just to field all those questions. (laughs) Yeah, but I thought it was great that you mentioned when you were younger and like teenage years and kind of being a bit of, lack of a better word here, fanboyish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, with certain paleontologists and just kind of reaching out and writing letters and calling people up and meeting with them. And I mean, what's so wonderful that we found about the paleontology community is that everyone is very friendly and open and willing to talk about their work and I think it's really cool to see how somebody goes from, you know, very early stages to becoming like one of one of the the world's experts. <laughs> so. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's an incredible community of paleontologists and dinosaur artists and dinosaur enthusiasts, dinosaur collectors, all, all kinds of folks. And, you know, I, I really wanted to highlight the work. A little bit of you know myself, but but mostly of so many of the people who who I respect so much in the field. But yeah, I did try to get in a little bit about that story of me kind of starting as this teenage fanboy dino geek, and actually making a career out of this stuff, and the steps along the way, and also the good fortune along the way, and the importance of really good mentorship. I hope that comes across because mm-hmm. there were a few people, really key people, that helped me out, and without any single one of them none of this would have happened. I wouldn't have become a paleontologist. I wouldn't have a job at a university teaching. I wouldn't be digging up dinosaurs or writing books. And, you know, one of them is my high school geology teacher, Joe Jacobcheck, who I dedicated the book to, along with my wife, who's a primary school teacher. And, you know, I think that's so important, quality teachers at all levels of education. And then I was lucky to work with Paul Serino as an undergrad, the famous Paul Serino. I mean, my goodness, how fortunate was I to be able to go to a great university, University of Chicago. I was able to do it. My parents saved up a lot of money so they could put my brothers and me through college. And I got that opportunity. And Paul opened up his lab to me and he gave me fossils to work on. He took me in the field. He took me to Tibet. I was a 22-year-old kid. <laughs> he took me to Tibet. Unbelievable. I mean, and then from there, you know, I went over to the UK. I was really fortunate to get some funding um, to do a master's in the UK. And I worked with Mike Benton in Bristol, the eminent Mike Benton. And I learned all these new statistical techniques. And that gave my research a new dimension. With Paul, I learned a lot about anatomy, about bones, about how to find bones, how to identify bones, how to categorize bones, how to do phylogenetic analyses. But with Mike in Bristol, I learned a lot about evolution, about testing, using statistics and lots of big data sets, you know, how groups evolve over time, how evolution proceeds. That's where I met my wife as well in Bristol. So that's another, you know, lucky (laughs) 
<laughs> twist. And then from there, I went to do a PhD back in the U.S. And my wife was crazy enough and loving enough to, <laughs> to come back over with me. And I got to work at the American Museum of Natural History, you know, in New York. I got to move to New York. I got to work with Mark Norell, the famous Mark Norell. I got to go to Romania and dig up dinosaurs with Mark. I got to study these amazing dinosaurs. The first thing he did when I came to New York and started with him in, in the autumn of 2008, the week of the financial crash, the world is burning. <laughs> and Mark walks me into a room and shows me a nearly complete skeleton of a tyrannosaur that he <laughs> and his team collected in the Gobi Desert and said, this is yours to study for your PhD. This is the start of your PhD. I mean, you know, it's just been one kind of blessing after another. And it comes down to that community and it comes down to great teachers, great mentors. And I really hope that, um, you know, now that I'm in a position where I run a lab and I have students, I really hope that I can, can, can do that, that sort of thing for my students. I know it's very, again, that, I know that's self-indulgent. So I want to be self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's important for people to hear real life examples too. Yeah, definitely. Shifting a little more into the dinosaur part of the book, there was a, a chapter you're talking about like dwarfism in the islands in Europe and the the dinosaurs there, like maybe they lived a little bit differently than dinosaurs that weren't on islands. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like, was Europe really a bunch of islands in the Mesozoic? Like how did the dinosaurs get around? Yeah. Oh, this is, this is a great topic. I love this. You know, these are some of the weirdest dinosaurs of all. And these are dinosaurs that um, come largely from Romania. So this is stuff I've done with, you know, Mark Norell when I was a student, but also we've continued collaborating with a couple of really excellent Romanian scientists. Machas Vremir and uh, Zoltan Chikisava are their names. Um, Machas is probably the best fossil collector I've ever worked with. And I talk about him in the book. He's an amazing personality. He's a funny <laughs> guy and a great, great, great adventure and fossil collector. These dinosaurs from Romania they come from the Cretaceous period. They come from the final few million years of the age of dinosaurs. This is the time when T-Rex is rampaging across North America. This is the time when those giant titanosaurs are thundering across the southern continents. But Europe back then was not a single continent. Europe was just a series of islands because sea level was so high back then because the world was warmer. There were no ice caps at the poles. And so all that water that today is in the ice caps, that was part of the ocean. So sea levels are much higher. And a lot of Europe is really low lying. I mean, there's parts of like the Netherlands stuff that are that are below sea level. So all of those lands were flooded back then. And all that poked up from the waves were the higher bits of what's Europe today. So kind of, you know, stuff today that's kind of mountainous in Romania or in parts of uh, France and Spain, or even here in, in the UK. And so you had a constellation of islands in this warmer world, subtropical islands, maybe a little bit like some of the Mediterranean islands or some of the Caribbean islands today. And living on these islands were dinosaurs and lots of other species. But each island had its own unique dinosaurs. And some of these islands were pretty small. So you would get dinosaurs that essentially were stranded there. They were marooned on these islands. And the normal rules of evolution broke down. You know, there might not have been big predators on some of those islands. So now all of a sudden, the plant eaters didn't have to worry so much about defending themselves. So some of them got really small. You had sauropods living on these islands. Remember, at the same time in South America, in Africa, <laughs> in India, in Madagascar, 
you had sauropods that were the size of Boeing 737 aircrafts. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, on those islands, you had sauropods the size of cows. (laughs) And that's just how weird some of these island dinosaurs were. And there were meat eaters on the islands that were weird. There's a little raptor dinosaur called Belor Bondok that we described a few years ago. Machias found this dinosaur when he was out prospecting for fossils with his two little boys. And this is a basically a velociraptor that's a bit smaller, and it has two sickle claws on each foot. So double the, the gutting, <laughs> double the eviscerating power. And so you have these weird meat eaters like that, too. And there were weird mammals. There were these little mammals with tiny brains. They probably didn't need big brains because there wasn't really anything out there to, to eat them, at least on some <laughs> of these islands. And so it's across the board. And this is an example of just an experiment in evolution. And that's why I love it. So with all these islands, were they always disconnected or was it like in recent times where there were like periods of ice or something that would allow dinosaurs to move or did they just have to swim? Is that like the only way they could get around? That's a good question. And and, and I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, some of the islands would have gotten bigger and smaller as sea level fluctuated. So there would have been times when there would have been more dry land and then times when even the islands were mostly flooded. Um, there probably would have been dispersal routes. There must have been because, I mean, the dinosaurs on the islands, they do have links to dinosaurs from other places. So mm-hmm. they got to the islands somehow. So you probably had dinosaurs that would, were hopping around and probably similar to how you get, you know, get certain species on Caribbean islands today. You know, things hop around things um, float around, you know, you have a storm, you have uh, some little animals on on a log that floats out to an island and they're the founder population. So I I would imagine that would have happened back then. It's a weird thing to think about, you know, some dinosaurs on a a raft of floating vegetation after a storm colonizing (laughs) some new island, but it it probably would have happened. Yeah, I suppose they were that far apart. So you wouldn't have to be that lucky to land on another island, not like trying to go across the Pacific or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it, w- it, it wouldn't have been quite that extreme. I think the Caribbean is a pretty good yeah. analogy. It's funny it. to think of Europe as like the Caribbean, though. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it just doesn't seem like, you know, you think of Germany and France and Poland and, you know, these kind of countries, they don't seem anything like uh, Jamaica or the Dominican Republic or Haiti. You know, it seems like a different world. But back then, Europe um, would have been warmer, would have had different vegetation, and it would have been islands. It would have been islands. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> well, so uh, again, for our listeners, Steve's book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, is out in paperback now. Uh, definitely worth a read. Definitely pick up a copy if you haven't already. And where would the best place be for if uh, any of our listeners wanted to read more about you and your work other than your book? <laughs> well, yes, of course, I'll take another opportunity to hawk the book. Uh, you know, get the book. It's, uh, you know, yeah, I think you'll like it, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I think the best thing is, you know, follow me on Twitter if you're at all interested. And usually I post, uh, you know, stuff I'm doing, but also post um, a lot of the things that my colleagues and friends and students are doing. And uh, otherwise, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Um, you know, my email's out there. It's easy to find. So for those of you that uh, do have questions or any of you that have read the book and want to tell me anything about it, please feel f- free to reach out. And for any of you out there that are interested in studying paleontology, no matter where you live, think about the University of Edinburgh, where I teach. We have a great program here. We have an undergraduate program, of course, like like any university. But we have a master's program. It's tailored to paleontology. It's a one-year program. Nice. And I run it along with uh, 
Rachel Wood, my colleague, who's a professor who studies the origin of animals and the origin of skeletons and how the first little shelly things started to, to form skeletons. So we run this course together. We get great students. It's, it's a really amazing way to start learning the basics, the foundation of research, how to become a research scientist, to get some fieldwork experience in Scotland as well. And uh, for most people to move to this beautiful city and live in a new place. So please, everybody out there, keep that in mind. And if you're, if any of you are at all interested in studying paleontology at the university level, get in touch. I'm full of, uh, <laughs> of experience, let's say, of how to make it work. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Sabrina Garrett, it's been a pleasure. And thank you again. And keep doing what you're doing. And um Let's chat again down the line. For sure. There's a lot more to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Steve, so much for chatting with us. We had a great time. And we mentioned Steve's book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. It's out in paperback as of yesterday when this recording is released, April 30th. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're like me and you read really slowly and you prefer audiobooks, (laughs) which you might be since you're listening to us right now. But it's also on Audible. That's how I listen to it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Hastasaurus, which was a request from Morgan via Patreon, specifically our Discord. So thanks. It was a sauropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now England, and the type species is Hastasaurus beckelsi. Only the forelimb is known, the humerus, ulna, and radius. Parts of the skin were also preserved. It was the first dinosaur specimen integument found, and it had hexagonal scales that decreased in size, maybe towards the elbow. So they look a lot like skin impressions in other later sauropod finds. Hastasaurus was a sauropod, so it was quadrupedal. It was herbivorous and had a long neck. That's got a complicated history since it was discovered so early on. So Richard Owen named Cetiosaurus in 1841. This is based on sauropod fragments found around England. For a long time, he thought that these fossils were all from large carnivorous marine reptiles and not dinosaurs. And he named four species of Cetiosaurus. That's pretty far off (laughs) from large carnivorous marine reptile to large land living herbivores. Yes, but it was early days. Yeah, that's true. If all you have is a limb, it's hard to tell. Melville reclassified most of these fossils as iguanodon, except for four caudal vertebrae and three chevrons that he said were a new species, Cetiosaurus coniberi. In 1850, a large right humerus was found near the site where the Cetiosaurus coniberi vertebrae was found, and Mantell, Gideon Mantell, named it 
Pylorosaurus coneyberi based on the humerus, caudal vertebrae, and chevrons. He found the humerus to be robust and straight, and that there was a medullary cavity. And he said Pylorosaurus was probably a dinosaur, not a marine reptile. So we're getting there. <laughs> Didn't take too long. Well, Owen disagreed, and he instead called the caudal vertebrae and chevron Cetiosaurus brevis and used the name Pylorosaurus coneyberi for the humerus. Samuel Beckles collected a block of sandstone in 1852 that was found near Hastings, which had a large forelimb and skin impressions, and Mantell analyzed the forelimb and named it as a second species of Pylorosaurus, Pylorosaurus beckelsi, in honor of Beckles, and that's based on the humerus being shorter and more robust. Not much was written about this find, and Richard Owen ignored it. Apparently, Richard Owen wasn't the best person to work with that's kind of <laughs> coming up to this discovery. In a few discoveries. Yeah. But anyway, the fossil was part of Beckel's private collection, and then the British Museum of Natural History purchased it in 1891. Richard Lidecker studied the fossils in the 1880s and 1890s, and he said that Pylorosaurus coneyberi could be a synonym of Ornithopsis. And he also said that the fossil for Pylorosaurus beckelsi could be Cetiosaurus brevis or referable to Titanosaurus or could be a new genus. And then he erroneously said that it came from the Isle of Wight instead of East Sussex where the fossils were found. Then Othniel Charles Marsh named Morosaurus, which is a sauropod from the late Jurassic Morrison Formation, which is now thought to be a junior synonym to Camarasaurus. And he compared British dinosaur material with North America dinosaur material when he visited England in 1888. In 1889, he said that Pylorosaurus beckelsi was referable to Morosaurus based on similarities in limb proportions and said that the combination was now Morosaurus beckelsi. Nicholson and Lidecker found that Cetiosaurus brevis, the caudal vertebrae of Pylorosaurus coneyberi, and Morosaurus beckelsi were the same, so they named them all Morosaurus brevis. However, like I said, <laughs> Morosaurus is no longer considered to be valid, and the diagnostic characters for it are vague and common to many sauropods. So in 1932, Frederick von Huhn found that the caudal vertebrae of Cetiosaurus brevis was part of Megalosauridae and that the humerus of Pylorosaurus beckelsi was different from Pylorosaurus coneyberi, they had different proportions, and so he referred to it as genus question mark beckelsi, and the question mark shows it to be an unknown genus. And it seems that he thought that it was closely related to Camarasaurus. Around 1990, John McIntosh found that Pylorosaurus was a valid brachiosaurid with a few species, such as Pylorosaurus coneyberi and Pylorosaurus mackensoni, but he did not consider Pylorosaurus beckelsi to be Pylorosaurus and instead thought that it was Sauropoda incerte sedis, which is an uncertain type of sauropod based on its limb proportions. Those are limb proportions. <laughs> Some people thought that this dinosaur was a titanosaur because of the robustness of the forelimb, but not everybody agreed. Several scientists have said that Pylorosaurus beckelsi is a distinct taxon, but didn't give it a name because the holotype's pretty incomplete, and it's been hard to establish autopomorphies, which are any kind of distinguishing characteristics. Then in 2015, Paul Upchurch, Philip Mannion, and Michael Taylor found that Pylorosaurus beckelsi was different enough from Pylorosaurus coneyberi and named it as a new genus, Hastosaurus beckelsi. So, came up in 2015. <laughs> so it's been around since 1840, but this name has only been around for four years. Yes. The humerus of Hastosaurus is pretty complete and unbroken. The ulna is complete, but was broken and repaired. The radius was mostly complete, but was broken in three places that were repaired. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, the team in 2015 found 
five autapomorphies, which included having a robust ulna with a slender radius and having two small vertical ridges on the humerus. It's unclear where Hastasaurus is phylogenetically. It could be a basal macronarian, the most basal, or it could be a derived titanosaur. The name Hasta is the name of a pre-Roman chieftain. His people settled in the area of Hastings and gave Hastings its name, which is near where the dinosaur was found. And I don't know how prevalent Hastasaurus is in pop culture, but we do mention it in our Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2015 book. <laughs> Since that's what was finally given that name. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a history with all the Polorosaurus, Cediosaurus, and Morosaurus names that it got over the years. Yep. Yeah. There's also a pretty big gap there. It kind of follows the popularity of dinosaur paleontology in an interesting way too. Like a lot going on in the late 1800s, a little bit in the early 1900s, and then that huge dearth of publications from like 1940 to 1990 when it springs back up again. Yeah, that's true. All for one sauropod arm. Worth it. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is that there were large tyrannosaurs in the eastern United States during the latest Cretaceous, but they may not have been T-Rex or even very close relatives of T-Rex. So according to an article in the Mosasaur, also known as the Journal of the Delaware Valley Paleontological Society, written by Chase Brownstein, there are a couple of toe bones found in New Jersey that look like they're from tyrannosauroids, and they, when they add up kind of the size based on the proportions of just the toe bones, they're estimating that it's somewhere in the 8 to 9 meter or 26 to 30 foot long theropod overall size range. And they also have some characteristics that make it look like it was probably a tyrannosauroid. So that's pretty big, 30 feet. It's not T-Rex 40 feet kind of range, but still way bigger than earlier tyrannosauroids and bigger than most theropods in general. And on top of the detail that you can tell that it's probably from a tyrannosauroid, they also think they can tell that it came from a basal tyrannosauroid and not a more derived tyrannosaurid like a T-Rex or Albertosaurus or one of these more derived tyrannosaurs. So there may have been sort of a separate group of tyrannosaurs evolving in the eastern U.S. than the western U.S. in the late Cretaceous. But we just don't have a lot of late Cretaceous good sites to look through in the eastern U.S. yet. We got to find one somewhere. Maybe we'll find a cool T-Rex distant relative. That'd be pretty awesome. Need more fossils. Always. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And also join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.